Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Yes, this is great. The NBC Live Peter Pan with Allison Williams and Christopher Walken. My friends and I are going to get together, drink a ton of wine, and make fun of it on Twitter. Wait, Kion, you mustn't. Who are you? I'm the fairy of black rolling suitcases that all look alike. What does that have to do with me? Oh, hold on one sec. The service I work for has me making a whole bunch of different calls today. Let's see. Okay, the suitcase thing is an hour from now. Uh, do me a favor, say the last few words before I appeared. And make fun of it on Twitter. Wait, Kion. You mustn't. Okay, now who are you? I'm the fairy of connecting to childhood innocence instead of hate-watching. That seems so specific. <laughs> you have no idea. Yesterday I was the fairy of not making racist jokes at book awards ceremonies. That went great. Anyway, the point is, Peter Pan is part of your childhood, and this very special television event is a chance to be transported back to your more innocent state in the arms of the daughter of one of America's most admired news anchors. But I was really looking forward to drunkenly hate-watching this and making fun of it on Twitter. You need to remember how much fun magic is. Here's what I want you to do. Chug this entire glass of Pinot Noir. That's good. Now, close your eyes and turn around three times while saying, I'm not a cynical hipster, over and over. I'm not a cynical hipster. I am not a cynical sifter. Ah, wonderful. She'll be unconscious until the second act. And now, here's the nose to talk about Bill Cosby, Mike Nichols, new living arrangements, and yes, Peter Pan. And now, still hate-watching the Teletubbies after all these years, Colin McEnroe. What bothers me is nobody ever joins in. Like, I turn the Teletubbies on, and I like, start, you know, making fun of them on Twitter. And there's, like, nobody, and I hashtag it, you know, stupid Poe and stuff like that. And nobody does, nobody joins in. Uh, and that's part of the fun of hate-watching. All right, we will come to that topic. We've got a lot on our minds today uh, here in the studio. To do the news is... Uh, is guitar hero, uh, super producer, cancer activist Jim Chapdelaine, uh, the fearless leader of Trinity Cine Studio, James Hanley, uh, and the fearless leader of The Cut and many other things. The Cut, of course, an online magazine for the still immature young adults of Connecticut. <laughs> uh, Teresa Kramer is here with us. Um, and still immature after all these years. After all these years. All right. So uh, we, uh, our topics today, we're all going to begin with the, um, the, 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 I don't even know what to call it, but the Bill Cosby saga that unfolds before our eyes, and it turns out has been unfolding kind of before our eyes, seen through a glass darkly for about 30 years. Uh, also, the passing of Mike Nichols, uh, I think uh, a man most of us uh, greatly admired. Uh, we also will talk about, um, you know, as, uh, there's nothing that I can say that will more quickly get people to turn off their radios all across Connecticut than in the West End of Hartford. It's sort of like what... Um, <laughs> John Oliver said, he's, you know, the, the, mo the only phrase more off-putting is featuring Sting. Uh, but we are, <laughs> we are going to talk about something happening in the West End of Hartford anyway. Uh, and it's, it's an unusual living arrangement, which is, um, you know, probably a key to the future of cities attracting creative classes, but it also bumps up against the zoning regulations. It's a, it's a story without applications and implications well beyond the West End of Hartford, I promise. 
don't turn off the show when we start talking about that. Because then you'll miss the part about Allison Williams, who really is playing Peter Pan and wants to <laughs> forbid us from hate watching it, uh, <laughs> forbid us from getting drunk and uh, zoning. doing mean, mean tweets. Yeah, actually, the zoning regs do not allow hate watching. Twitter zoning. Uh, yeah, you, sh- you should read your deeds and covenants carefully. You may not be allowed to hate watch from your current abode. All right, so we're going to be- begin with Bill Cosby. And there have been so many iterations to this over the last few days, and it's almost difficult to know where to start. But um, but let's start somewhere. And and I don't, I don't know, James. Uh, for me, what's been odd is the is the realization that this story has been this very dim drumbeat that's been around for a long time. But somehow or other, it's never been dealt with the way a comparable story about almost anybody else would be dealt with. Um, and, and that we even had this spectacle of this uh, AP footage that was released this week uh, where it's an, uh, a video interview, a video AP interview, where at the end Bill Cosby says, you know, not only do I not want to talk about that, but I want you to take out the thing where I said I didn't want to talk about that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and initially got some compliance for that. So I don't know, give us a good explanation for, for how this has all been possible. Well, it's kind of like a, an iconic figure that uh, he is, and he seems to have been able to play that out in such an extraordinary way that he's insulated himself. One of the most extraordinary things about that AP interview in that last bit after the official interview was over was the thing where he says, uh, you know, I would have expected that you wouldn't have asked me that, or mm-hmm. as if there was a sort of expectation that here I am, such magnificent royalty that, you know, that 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 pure protocol would say that you wouldn't ask that. Well, he actually says, as a matter of your integrity. Yes, exactly. He puts it your integrity. Yeah, yeah <laughs> exactly. I mean, it's like turning it on its head. But what that reveals, uh, in my sense of it, was that there's this expectation, but there's also a kind of like an, a kind of weird menacing quality to it too, that is implying that this reporter really crossed the line here, and maybe you better talk to your boss, you mm-hmm. know, and. Um, I mean, what I would really have liked to have seen there is actually a reporter with some with some teeth who comes out and says, you know, look, you're a public figure. You're being accused by a large number of people of, of, of crimes and you have nothing to say, you know. And, and, and meanwhile, his wife is sort of like on, an, on another planet sitting next to him, sort of smiling and acting though as though all they're talking about is the art. But there's a weird thing about um, it's it's kind of like uh, somebody like him has a hold over media, of course, and this sense that, okay, you can't challenge this person. But it's really interesting that it could go on for so long. Why would it go on for so long? Why? I, I can't really answer that because when you think of how quickly people get pushed off a cliff, over something like, like say, a political statement or, you know, some sort of like like some other kind of criminal activity. It, this seems to be a sort of creepy connection between a creation of an icon and somebody cre- apparently behaving like really badly and committing crimes behind the image that that icon has allowed. Um, uh, Teresa, is it possible? I mean, Ann Landers used to say, nobody can take advantage of you without your cooperation. Mm-hmm. Um, and is it possible that we didn't want this story? I mean, you know, Jim and I are of an age where I don't know if you had this experience or not, but we like I bought all of his comedy records as a kid, mm-hmm. and his comedy records were great. They were this, the, they were these long form stand up monologues that nobody had really done before, and they they were also <coughs> access for me as a little white uh, suburban kid to you know stories about growing up black in America. They were kind of charming stories. You without uh, swearing, without swearing, yeah. You a person of a very different age. 
age, probably mm-hmm. did grow up at the Huxtables, you know, as this incredibly model family. Is there some way in which we just didn't want this information? Absolutely. That is exactly why no one talked about it. No one, he is the elder statesman of entertainment. You know, Chris Rock used to do, I don't know if it was really a bit or if I just heard him say it, but he said he would not, the two celebrities he would not cross were Bill Cosby and Oprah. And the whole reason this even sort of blew up is because Hannibal Burris, another comedian, did take him on and said, hey, Bill Cosby, you don't get to tell us what to do. You're a rapist. So, like, mm. you know, until someone was finally willing to stand up and say, hey, you don't have to you don't have to admire Bill Cosby. It doesn't matter what he did. He is a rapist. And, you know, he has been he's made settlements with these women it, you know, until someone was willing to stand up and say that you don't have to admire him, people were just like, I don't know what to do with the idea that Cliff Huxtable is, you know, going around sexually assaulting women. No one wants to think about that. Well, I, you know, and, and I don't know. I mean, Jim, uh, one of the things that I was sort of saying and thinking to myself initially is, well, all these things still have kind of the status of accusations as opposed to proof. I mean, I don't, I don't even feel that right now. I can sit here and say, well, Cosby is a racist. Mm-hmm. Although, as ta Coates so eloquently said in his piece this week, it's not a matter of his word against another person. It's a matter of his word against at least 15. 15, I think, so far. It's, I think all of us are so disappointed, right, because he crafted this iconic status as the guy who wouldn't work blue, the guy who was an incredible role model for uh, uh, urban black kids growing up. Here's a, another way out. To, here's a hopeful person. Here's an icon that you could reach out to um, if you were male, maybe. So uh, it, it, the thing that really caught me was that, that if these women are right, and I assume with 15 women coming forward with almost identical stories. I mean, even stories, if five of them are telling right, the right, truth. Right, right, <laughs> right. No, that's what I mean. I, I don't think you can doubt this yeah. that much anymore. They, he has a system. I mean, whoever his drug dealer is has been very busy. Mm-hmm. Whoever he, and so it's drugs, and then they wake up all you know in mean? a kerfuffle, and and then they then they're suppressed, or they make a settlement, or their and careers say, no are over. Ga- no one's going to believe me. This is Bill Cosby. <clears throat> you right. know, it's not like someone said it about Colin it's Farrell the, or some notorious bad right. boy. He's avuncular and likable, yeah. and and a. Uh, but I think there's also this this thing that bothers me really is the facilitators behind it, mm-hmm. that that so many people had to know. I mean, some uh, the, there's one case where um, the, the woman describes how assistants took her in a car. You know, she wakes like, up in a parking she lot. Wakes, yeah, I mean, uh, the, the, there were a lot of people involved in this who had to know and and had to get paid and had mm-hmm. to get paid, and you there had to have been. Some sort of rumors and filtering up to the part to of the studio is. executives, people who knew. What did they think? Let's play it until it falls apart. It, I think part of it is is that it is couched in power, and yeah, money, yeah. and icon, and and everything. So how how does a, a victim? Sort of challenge yeah. all three of those giant hills. Mm-hmm. Well, it's kind of the premise of the show Ray Donovan, right? That there are these people who run around fixing, fixing things, things up, right. fixing things for right. celebrities. And right. I think those people do exist. He didn't quite get to Ray on time, I don't think. <laughs> no, um, or maybe he did and just used Ray, called Ray's number one time too many. Right. Um, you know, one thing about this that uh, um, that has intrigued me, uh, Teresa, is that 
Um, well, I think Heraclitus said everything contains its own opposite. So, um, you know, and it seems inevitably true when somebody is a moral censor, mm-hmm. you know, it's like you can almost turn the egg timer over before they get caught doing something. And so Bill Cosby, one of the things he's done, in addition to producing very wholesome programming, he's kind of set himself up as an arbiter of what's right and what's mm-hmm. wrong, saying to black kids, pull up your pants, turn your baseball caps around, do this, do that. You know, you have to straighten up and fly right or nobody's going to take our entire race seriously. Uh, I mean, I think most people are kind of familiar with his what's now called his pound cake speech. Um, and and so I'm unsurprised. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I'm unsurprised to find out that there's a complete flip side to this. No, when I, th- I I've thought about it in those terms as well. And he's sort of like a televangelist, right, who gets caught with like a gay prostitute or something. You know, you're just like, of, of course, no one can be this morally upstanding all the time. But there but there had also been I, re- I remember as a kid, it came out that he had had an affair on Camille. Right. Mm-hmm. And had a I think there was a kid. Right, yep. he had I a kid. Was. Yeah. Right, and I remember being sort of disappointed, like, "Oh my God, you know." But you sort of not attribute all oh, those yeah. people in Hollywood; they live crazy lives. Well, but you don't. I I don't think people think that about Bill Cosby. I really don't. And so, the, on the on the one hand, there is absolutely no shock that there's no one that can be this clean cut all the time. No, no one is. Sooner or later, you're going to tweet the wrong picture of a body part to somebody when you're. And when maybe you're culturally, where people are more open. To the idea that hey, rape takes place, and mm-hmm. and thirty years ago, it was mm-hmm. it was probably much harder for a victim to come forward and not face all kinds of scrutiny, especially mm-hmm. against a, a iconic figure like him. Mm-hmm. And now it might be it must still be horrible, but it mm-hmm. it's probably slightly easier to make your case. The problem is I don't think anybody came forward within statute of limitations. But he but, has certainly but, settled out of court with a lot of these right, women. Right. That, that, I mean, it wasn't just settlements out of court. It was like paying college fees. It was mm-hmm. like, you know, like like actually being still involved in these women's lives, women who were minors when they were first involved with him. And it's kind of like – it's kind of like an equation of power really mm-hmm. that we are complicit in, you know, the idea that somebody who has a particular image – um, I mean, you look at, for instance, the image of John Kennedy, for example, and the the the, the whole nature of, you know, the, the lot of. Don't talk tell me about, he did stuff too. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, people do want to believe this, but then there's all of this money riding on a huge image campaign, an iconography that is very hard to challenge for anybody who might come forward, and who's probably, I would imagine, that uh, maybe they're not saying it, but some of these women maybe were threatened. You know that. Uh, if, I think they've said that. Yes. Yeah, I think they have uh, said yeah, that. And yeah, with their careers, with not with the their a- lives. Yeah, exactly. With the AP article, you know, or with the AP video, one of the things you see is exactly how he goes about intimidating yeah, someone exactly. very yes. softly without yeah. Yeah, so in, actually... In, for people who haven't watched the video, too, it's interesting because he actually... Um, I, you know, I think he does use the royal we when he's talking. Yes, in this, he does, in this AP yeah. video, we, he, we he's like, he gets it. asked by... and and. and the obsequiousness of this reporter. I mean, he's, he's a young reporter with a kind of a high, reedy voice. Can and I ask you a yeah, question? He's, just, yes. uh, he's <laughs> so apologetic about asking but, this question. But interestingly, the same thing happened last week when the NPR guy was talking to Scott, him. He said, you know, yes. Mr. Cosby, I take no pleasure in saying right. and having to ask you this question. Yeah, so they're very America deferential. I thought Scott Simon handled it very well because yeah. what happened, in that, that was radio, and Scott Simon mm-hmm. said, you're shaking your head. Yeah. And then, right, then he right. said, 
said something else, yeah. and he said, "Okay, you're still shaking your head." Mm-hmm. And I, th- I mean, in, in a way, Scott Simon, I thought he matched him a little bit. But yeah, well, but I, th- I think he did, but I, I, I recoiled greatly when he said, "It gives me no pleasure to ask you this mm-hmm. question." Come on, he's a journalist, and he's 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 there having an interview. Well, it doesn't have to give him pleasure. But, but it also, well, I mean, <laughs> if the journalist can't even can't even muster the courage to ask him the question, exactly. how are the women supposed exactly. to muster the courage right. to right. come exactly. out? That's right. a great point. Yeah. 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 Very good point. Our, our number, by the way, we can't stay with this topic too much longer, but our number is 860-275-7266. 860-275-7266. It does, I just, you know, when I think of the, the really fascinating, memorable things that have been said to me in my life, most of them, of course, uh, happened on the nose, but... Um, <laughs> Years ago, I asked the spiritual writer Thomas More a question about this. I said, why is it that every time there is somebody who's kind of censorious, mm-hmm. you know, in public life, you, you almost know, you know, that, that Laura Schlesinger will turn out to have broken every moral edict that she lays down mm-hmm. on her radio show. Wow. And that, that ten ha- Ted Haggard will be caught with the male prostitute and the meth, you know. And, that, like, <laughs> and the uh, homophobe will be gay. Yeah, yeah, and the homophobe will be gay. And just over and over again, you know, these things just happen, you know, so predictably almost. And, and he said a really fabulous thing. He said, they've already acknowledged the power this material has over them. That's why they're talking about it. You know, that they, they, and I think sort of to, to one of James's points, too, is they also have acquired a lot of power over the course of doing that. Mm-hmm. So yeah. they're already interested in this, you know, kind of right, who right. gets to boss whom around, you know, and, and, and under what circumstances. And, and then, of course, you, you acquire some power on top of that. And so it's kind of not that surprising in so some the ways. The lines get very blurry between the preacher and, and the preacher. The moralist and the yeah. libertine. I mean, right. the, yeah, cause, because in fact— they, uh, he's right. They, they, yeah. they, they. I mean, I don't sit around well, thinking yeah, about this all day. Exactly. I, I, when you well, start I, talking about this, I thought about I, I, um, endorsed a thing called the E Team, a documentary called the E Team, a couple weeks ago on oh, here. Yeah, yeah. And, and there's a part where you know the there's a woman who's come to investigate human rights violations. She's in Syria, and they ask her to cover her ankle. I mean, she is head to toe covered, but her ankle like so slips offensive. out, and I'm like. And I'm just thinking, like, maybe if you saw an ankle once in a while, it wouldn't hold so much power over you that mm. you because they were basically like, it's very distracting to them. They're not going to be able to talk to you. And so she covers up her ankle. But I'm like, if you just saw an ankle once in a while, it wouldn't be such a big deal. You know, I feel like I, I have to be Scott Simon here yeah. and say, for the record, uh, mm-hmm. Teresa's ankles are covered right now. Yeah, my ankles <laughs> are covered. I have ankles. very tall boots on. Um, but so <laughs> now you've lost my train of thought. Oh, <laughs> you know, I'm curious how this is all going to play out now because it's in motion and it it's it's still a very fluid sort of circumstance where uh, who how many more women are going to come out and when does his team start walking away from him or backing down? I don't think his and, team and walks away from him. I think the entertainment industry walks away from well, him. Well, they already I, have. They yeah. canceled the it's show. Interesting. They canceled everything. I, I, yeah. It's interesting, though, that the lawyer's statements, not one of them has actually denied it. They say this is outrageous. Yeah, this right, is right. like way off the charts. This there is were, crazy. I think they How could you say that? denied yeah. the Janice Dickinson allegation. I think that's the only because oh, I remember reading an article where it, very, it compared that response to the other responses mm-hmm. where they said 
she's lying, this is not true, and everybody else, they were just like, oh, we don't talk about that. And it's certainly, <laughs> like, it's certainly something that Bill Cosby won't do. That's why yeah. he shakes his head at Scott mm-hmm. Simon, and that's why, to the little AP reporter, he says, we don't talk about this. Mm-hmm. He doesn't say, that never happened. Yeah. I mean, is he yeah. bound by any legalities well, right now? Well, that's what I've been wondering, why no one has it's, explained whether or not. But no. not, I mean, a lot of these women, he they're new allegations, and he doesn't have any. You probably have a lawyer saying, don't leave anything on the table. Right. But, but you know. presumably, they knew that something was, like, rumbling in the distance, and yet they did that tweet Twitter campaign. I think he thought he was invincible because it's been so long where these have been out for so long. This has been out there, right? It's been at least 10 years. He just like America doesn't want to hear it. They're never going to care. It's interesting that another comedian is the guy Mm -hmm. who ends up taking him down. He brings up the fact that Cosby wouldn't work blue. He says, you know, you tell other entertainers not to swear. And he's like, maybe you should have just swore a couple times on himself and not raped anybody. Right. It's basically what he said. I I do have a few phone calls coming in. To the Hannibal Burris point, the comedian point, well, there's a long Shakespearean tradition of the fool right. being able to say things <laughs> to the king that other people cannot say. Here's Gina in Waterbury. Hi, you're on the air. Hi. Yeah, I was just calling because I hear you guys, you know, maybe he shouldn't have raped anyone. For I personally think, why is everyone all of a sudden believing these women when it took so long to come out? Maybe that one of them just had an idea like, oh, let's just, you know, we're automatically assuming he's guilty and, you know, he's you know, he hasn't been proven guilty. And if I, I would have a hard time believing anyone that took so long to come out. If it's something that was so detrimental and horrible that happened to you, why you didn't do something then, no matter what you thought, the backlash? Well, of course, uh, you know, Gina, mm-hmm. I don't mean to interrupt you, but a lot of, a lot of these women did bring up mm-hmm. things at the time. In other words, some of these cases and charges have been floating around for a long time and have been sort of part of the public consciousness in a very dim way for, you know, mm-hmm. more than a decade. So it's not like yeah, in I don't 20... Take, I don't, you know, I'm not on social media. I don't spend my life on the computers. I don't have, you know, I have other things going on. So just from the little bit that I've heard, the only thing I know is that it took so long. For me, it's like, well, why did, why would you, you know, and... Yeah, it, it took so long for this story to move front and front and center, and that's kind of what we were talking about at the beginning of the show. Why did that take so long? But it's certain, certainly not the case that all of the women remain silent until a couple of weeks no, in, the, in the winter. made it their life's crusade in, yeah. in some cases. Mm-hmm. That uh, Barbara Bowman, I think, has he, went public a long, long time ago. And as we've talked about, he's him. never come out and deny it. Denied it. He could have said, you know, after the first woman or two, you'd think, oh, this is just going to keep happening. I'm going to have to come out and or speak after publicly the, about and, this. And, or after the first settlement or mm-hmm. five yeah. you know if you keep settling that <laughs> suggests something it's exactly what r kelly does who has been on trial for the same thing right mm-hmm. and uh, yeah but he's and uh, if we had more time it would be mm-hmm. interesting to talk about him because mm-hmm. he's as you say in kind of the same position mm-hmm. some of the stuff that he's involved he's been involved in of which there's even video evidence mm-hmm. is even weirder and creepier <laughs> uh but so, and so involves far young girls yeah it involves young girls and and somehow or other he's limping along in reasonably good shape right now i've got uh maybe i can just grab one or two more calls here and then we really need to move on susan from new milford hi susan hi um i wanted to, to say um that, that maybe there's a whole generation that's grown up um without being um whose mothers didn't teach them to sit in the back seat when the when they babysat and the father drove them back or you know who i just grew up surrounded by stories in every group that there was always somebody to watch out for um and that men could not be trusted and that the men that in this area and that even some of the men that made the best contributions um that uh there would there would always be um you know somebody who really had a, a hidden life 
But, or, but Susan, you know, some of these things, I mean, these accusations span 30 years. So that it's not as though there's a new generation of women who don't know any better. It's, 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 in the, oh, in the, in 30 years ago, people would have said, just take the money from him and turn your head. This is going to happen. There was much more acceptance. Than oh, you. I see. Right. Mm-hmm. I agree with that. Yeah, I do mm-hmm. agree with that. We have one more quick call here. This is Derek in Windsor. Hi, Derek. Oh, um, yeah, thanks for taking my call. I, you know, the media I love, but sometimes I think the media go overboard with an issue. For example, it, it, it's in America that, you know, guilty and uh, innocent until proven guilty. And sometimes the media seem like they try you before you actually come to a guilty verdict. And my second point is, America, I'm from a different country, as you can tell my intellect. America is obsessed, over, obsessed when it comes to sex, and I don't know why. It seems like it's just sex if you're selling a car. It's sex if you're selling food. Although I think we should sex. be clear that rape is not sex. Rape is violence. Well, we're not saying that is, but it's part of the culture, and then right. pretty soon it falls into. I, I don't think that has. I don't see how that really relates to the story that much. All right. In any case, we've got to move on. We don't have that much time, but I did want to give everybody kind of a chance to say something anyway about Mike Nichols. He died yesterday at the age of 83. Um, and uh, I, I have my own thoughts about him and kind of what he meant to me. But I, I would imagine nobody's life was untouched one way or another by Mike Nichols. And, Jim, I know you sort of have been gone back, gone back and looked at the Nichols and May comedy routines, which, which are also great, not only great comedy routines, but occasionally great commercials, too. They did it's just great and groundbreaking. You know, I mean, it's like, it's, it's like if Saturday Night Live was – intellectually funny all the time or something i don't know it was just it was it's amazing but the for me the, the, what i would say what the first thing that struck me is this guy was had so much output and 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 qualitative output in his career that that those early skits the nichols and may probably actually were enjoyed by my dad's generation the the silent generation and certainly baby boomers came to enjoy everything from the graduate to uh, to carnal knowledge we were talking about earlier. So uh, he's touched almost every generation. I mean, he got his last Tony two years ago. So mm-hmm. he was still so vital and filled with the ideas and output. I mean, uh, it's a giant legacy to me. And an ease and EGOT. He's Tracy Jordan's dream. <gasps> he actually does have the EGOT. Does he have the big necklace? And he does like not have the big <laughs> necklace now. So, uh, James, I'd be curious to know. I mean, if you were going to put on a a very quick uh, Mike Nichols retrospective. Are there one or two films you would want to throw up there on the screen of, uh, at Cine Studio? Well, the one that everybody always asks for under some circumstances is The Graduate, of course, but the one that I instantly came up with that we haven't shown very often is Carnal Knowledge. Um, Carnal Knowledge was almost sort of, to me, um, I mean, it was the antithesis of a Hollywood film, except that it contained Hollywood stars, but it had like an intellectual challenge about it. And it also was sort of like navel-gazing to a certain extent, but it had the intellectual force of somebody who was actually talking about characters in a serious way at a time when there was a great sort of societal upheaval. And so I, that was a film that I remember watching when it first came out. And 
the audience was half of the audience was really into it, and other people would some people were notably disturbed by it and felt that it was like like just going over the edge kind of thing. That's because of Art Garfunkel. Right. <laughs> I, I think it would play well today too. I mean, I think yeah, you know it, 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 it grows yeah. a little bit uh, alongside the conversation we just had. It really is about yes. you know a, a man who comes to see sexuality only in predatory terms right. and destructive terms. Right, um, and, and, and I think there's also that theme that's lying behind um, uh, The Graduate because The Graduate actually you know, is perceived as this sort of youth anthem in a way, you know, and it's the beginning of, a, of, of Dustin Hoffman's career. Um, but that film contains I- incredibly provocative uh, things about you know, the consumer society, about uh, the whole nature of what direction America was going in at the time. And you had, uh, the, you know, Anne Bancroft is this sort of uh, almost symbolically uh, predatory character um, who is willing to willing to do anything really to to get what she wants to 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 be able to control the things she wants. And then there's that incredible image at the end of thrusting the crucifix mm-hmm. into the doors of the church to stop the screaming mob, including her, of course. Uh, right. You know, trying to get out and riding away in the back of the bus and too, riding right? away and in the as, back as, of a public a... bus. Uh, <laughs> With with a sort of bemused crew of people who are sort of you know like like part of the scene at the end, I I think that it's such a a, a rich movie in so many ways. I'd be hard pressed to choose between the two. Okay, producers are getting nervous. We have to wrap this up fast. But Teresa, you get to do Mike Nichols if you want to. I, I'm ignorant. I'm ignorant to the legacy of Mike Nichols, and you should all kick me out of the studio. All right, we're going to kick you out of the studio. I just want to quickly just mention a few sort of Connecticut things that are really important. The first thing is, no, nobody would know the show Annie. You would never have heard of the show Annie were it not for Mike Nichols. He lived in Bridgewater, Connecticut at the begging, I think, of Martin Charnin. He drove across Connecticut. It took him a really long time. He complained about it a lot. Uh, to East Haddam on the last weekend that uh, Annie, this brand new musical that nobody had ever heard of, was playing at the Goodspeed. There were no plans for Annie after the Goodspeed. Uh, Nichols saw it. He said to all the people there, it's great, but I'm not really a producer. I don't know what I can do for you. He went home. He called them back up and he said, okay, maybe I am a producer. I'll produce this show on Broadway. He is the reason that the show Annie ever existed anywhere except East Haddam, Connecticut. The other thing is uh, he um, had a relationship with the Long Wharf Theater. I was lucky enough to see him. Now, remember, Nichols directed, his first movie job was to direct the movie version of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf with Taylor and Burton. I saw him as George, opposite Elaine May as Martha, uh, in a version of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf with uh, Swoosey Kurtz uh, and Jim Naughton in 1980 at the Long Wharf Theater in New Haven. So, And w- it was remarkable, too. I mean, it wasn't there were plot problems with this play. But uh, but anyway, so he had a huge relationship with Connecticut uh, and had a big footprint on the art scene here. And I, I, I want that to be remembered about him today. All right, we've got to take a quick break. I don't want to miss Allison Williams, if I possibly can. Uh, we'll be back after this. All right. So, as I said before, uh, one great way to get everybody else in Connecticut to stop listening to say, in the West End of, West End of Hartford. Uh, but in the West End of Hartford, this has larger applications. Uh, there's kind of an inter- interesting story unfolding on Scarborough Street, which is one of the <laughs> priciest and classiest looking streets in Hartford. It's uh, where the Gilmores live. Yeah. It's where yeah. The, is it really where the Gilmores live? <laughs> I don't know. Live? They yeah. don't say, but it's pretty obvious. It's pretty obvious they yeah. live on the Gilmore Street. <laughs> so, on Scarborough Street. So, um, 
a group of people, I think it was uh, last August, I've got this stuff here right in front of me, but uh, a group of people, it's three married couples, two single people, three kids, so 11 people all told, uh, have wound up living together in one of these big sprawling mansions uh, on Scarborough Street. They are, many of them, part of the incredibly desirable so-called creative class that you want to attract to cities. You want these people uh, to be here in your city. One of the things they do typically very well is reuse uh, in interesting ways existing housing. Uh, but they do a lot of other things, too. So everybody wants them. And so that's uh, who these people are in many cases. And, of course, they're also um, they're young, young blood, for the most part, uh, infusing the life of the city. The problem is that they've been challenged by the neighbors. So the, supposedly there's a, a petition or some kind of complaint that was filed with the city with, that, has, that has supposedly 18 signatures on it. Um, and the, city, the Hart- Hartford, in its usual... The City Hall of Hartford, in, in its usual nuanced, thoughtful, collaborative, collegial, um, <laughs> discussion-oriented style, sent these people a cease, a cease and desist letter out of the blue saying, you can't do this, you can't live here, uh, flee for your lives. Um, so it's kind of turned into, as we say, a kerfuffle. Um, and, but it has sort of interesting, there's sort of interesting questions, too, like what, what can be a family in a single-family home, uh, and, and how should cities think uh, about themselves and about the housing that they have and about the kind of people that they're attracting here in this new era. So, um, so I don't know. I'll throw it out uh, onto the table. I was thinking, I was walking my dog today thinking about this story, and I was like, how could the city change their regulations to accommodate situations like this? Because they just probably shouldn't be in the business of defining what a family is on any level, right? So really it should be more about like people per square foot of the house or sorry, per, per thousand square feet or something like that, right? Because it's not about – because they're not complaining about the number of people. They're just complaining about how they know each other. So – to me, I'm thinking that they should just say, okay, this is enough. There's enough square footage to accommodate all of you. There's enough acreage here to accommodate all of you and back off and change their regulations. I mean, I think changing their regulations is going to happen, mm-hmm. and, I, and I think it's a relatively easy thing to do. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. James, uh, I'm just letting everybody sort of the give question, out their thoughts about it. The question, though, is that whether such a thing is really subject to reg- regulations. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are lots of court cases where cities have tried to essentially go inside the house, go inside the home and say who's a family and who's not. And they're always lost because you can't really do that. You can't regulate how people live in a house, but you can have some sort of impact. Like we're, we're dealing with this in stores around the university, which is just in the process of adding 6,000 students without adding enough dorm space. And so there's a lot of pressure on single-family homes. And one of the s- serious issues that the, the town tries to deal with, first of all, they, they pretty much recognize that they can't do anything about saying who lives in the house, but they can regulate things like parking, for example, mm-hmm. as a kind of indirect way. But I think there's also another way you could say, well, if somebody buys a house and turns it into a business and says, okay, I've got 15 rooms and I'm going to rent them out one by one to the students. And so then you have 15 cars, then they all get friends, and so you have 30 cars. Well, that's an impact, a negative impact in the neighborhood. And you can say, well, it's you can't run a business like that in the neighborhood. But when you have a group of creative people as these are, or any group of people who are living together who are actually choosing to bring their lives together, they have common bank accounts, and they are actually sharing their living duties. They're actually, uh, you know, taking care of the house. uh, There's nothing really that the city can say, I don't think, that says that that's something wrong. And Scarborough Street, it should be noted, also has 
um, houses, supposedly single-family houses that are owned by businesses, which are the university and the Wadsworth Athenaeum. They're nonprofits, it's true, but those are not single-family houses anymore. Although, I mean, those those houses have almost the opposite problem. I mean, the Athenaeum house is the Chick Austin house. Nobody lives there. They use it for occasional special events. And the other one is, of course, Susan Herbst's Vanity mm-hmm. Mansion, uh, which is also but you could argue, unoccupied. You could argue yeah. that both uses are not what this group of people Certainly complaining. Certainly not families. No, exactly. And I, mean, and, and I would want to know sort of what the deeds and covenants said on those purchases. And I, I, One of the, my problems with this story is it's kind of underreported so far. I don't really know everything that I want to know about it, although I have had a little bit of a dialogue uh, today uh, online with one of the people who lives in the uh, creative class house on Scarborough Street. So I know a little bit more about this story. But, yeah, Jim, your reactions? I, I would, if I was living in that house, I would instantly go online right now, form a religion, mm-hmm. and uh, hide under the protection of that religion. I would marry everybody in the house. Uh, everyone else should adopt everybody in the house. And form a family, and now you have uh, now you're protected by freedom of religion. Right. Do you remember when Sikh Dharma was on Tremont Street in the West End of Hartford? Do you remember back? That there was actually there was this. Uh, it was it wasn't actual Sikhs from India. It was oh yes, actually yes, a, uh, yeah. bunch of white people who were very interested in in Eastern religion, and they all wore war- white robes and white turbans, and they didn't cut their beard, and they didn't cut their beard or their hair. And Guru John Singh Khalsa, their leader, was actually the treasurer of the West End Civic Association, <laughs> and it was just as you say. Um, so um, the one thing that I would say about all this is. Um, that um, I think if there's a villain in the story, it's City Hall and and how the city operates. Um, the, the neighbors, I, I, I hate to demonize the neighbors who complain about this because they're living in Hartford. I mean, they could be they're they probably have quite a bit of money if they can afford Scarborough Street. They could be living in Simsbury. They could be living in Avon. They're living in Hartford. They're and they're trying. And, and everybody who owns property wants to know what are the permitted uses around me. You know what what can happen around me. I mean, it's just a natural instinct for people who own property. So that's kind of I think what they're asking. And and maybe they did it in the wrong way. It seems like they went behind these people's backs, you know, and, and didn't really sort of talk to them seems about like it Seems like a lot of them actually don't care. If you read the, the social right. media comments, most of them don't care. There's probably a few who are very uptight about it. So, I mean, but I don't want to make them the demons here, and, and I certainly don't. I, I think these people need to be allowed to stay. I think they're exactly what cities need, you know. I mean, and I think it, for all the reasons I said at the beginning, it's important that, they, that cities find ways to attract creative people who will use property differently because some of that property is less viable in its old state anyway so that's great but the 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 agency that has to do all this is literally an agency the city should have gotten everybody talking from the very beginning they should have gotten the complaining neighbors and these people and said look what are your issues what are your issues what are your concerns how can we work this out do we need do we do we need to change the regs do you need a variance what can we say to you the worried neighbor what can we do that will set your minds at rest sending these people a season to letter out of the view out of the blue is unfortunately exactly how Hartford City Hall frequently behaves in these situations they are high-handed and ham-fisted and if there's a problem here it's their fault uh, so you know I mean then they need to fix this now and they know they, they know how to fix it there are people there who know how to fix it but um, you know it's uh, for Pedro Cigar I would say you know a lot of lofty rhetoric about what you want Hartford to be 
uh, and uh, and how to attract the right kind of people, exciting, dynamic people to Hartford. And then you've got to make your agencies toe the line on that and live the values. There's an echo also in the in not just in Hartford, but in other cities about things like so-called mother-in-law apartments and whether you can actually. Just Hartford. Ha- yeah, I mean, <laughs> th- these are things that, that that if you look at places like uh, which actively encourage it, places like Portland, Oregon, for example, you have a very rich and diverse community, mm-hmm. and you have older people living near young people, you have children, you have children aware of uh, older people, you have a much better mix of, of, of possible, uh, you know, people with jobs, people without jobs. You have a much richer society generally, and I think that that's something that sort of lies in the background here because Hartford fought that for a very long time. I mean, the flip side of this, too, just so we're not, I don't seem too adoring of the creative classes, cities do have to enforce their zoning regulations. Uh, I mean, maybe they need to fix their zoning regulations so that they are better enforceable or, or figure out how to do variances on them and stuff like that. But nobody will buy property in a place that doesn't in, in, uh, enforce zoning regulations because then you don't know what's going to happen around you. So, I mean, there is that side to this story. Anyway, we do have to move on because we didn't want to miss this out. I think we owe this uh, to Teresa. I think she's the one who alerted us. I'm going to give her credit and or blame for this. Mm-hmm. So, um, as we know, in about a month, uh, NBC is going to have another live production, a live theatrical production. This time it will be the beloved Peter Pan production, which originally starred uh, Mary Martin and Cyril Richard. Uh, this time it's Allison Williams and Christopher Walken. And what Allison Williams wants us not to do, she said, if you're going to watch this the same way that you watch a TV show that you hate, uh, but you hate watch it with all your friends so that you can drink wine and tweet at each other about how it's bad. You need to just go ahead and take those lenses out of your glasses and put in the lenses that you had when you were six. Because otherwise you're looking at this through the whole wrong viewfinder. Uh, and so she, so she really sort of is forbidding, forbids us to, to hate watch and live tweet. Double hate watch. Uh, double hate watch. Yeah. Uh, is that what you're going to do? Is double hate watch? I, I don't know. Do they negate? Do they negate lo- each other? Can I loathe watch it? Because I can't <laughs> find those those goggles anymore. My, I, although I'd like to be able to see how I. I feel if we don't hate watch this, the terrorist will have won. But. Um, <laughs> um, you know, I'm a little annoyed that Brian Williams' daughter doesn't have a better sense of humor about her ridiculous self because because <laughs> he's hilarious and he right. cracks me up all the time and why she like. She, she, know, she saw what happened Peter. to Carrie Underwood during, you know, The Sound of Music. She knew this was going to happen. That's why she's trying to preempt it. I would just, you know, go along with it. Who cares? Why stop being a jerk? I'm so disappointed in James because I really thought when this topic came up and we were discussing it through emails that James would say uh, that it's actually a vast conspiracy on the part of NBC (laughs) and Allison Williams to get people so interested in hate watching and live tweeting this show. we're talking about it. That they break every imaginable television ratings record, but he's just not willing to go there. It is tempting to think that, but I didn't want to be too predictable. But uh, it's really um, something that certainly i mean uh, you you have to see how rapidly you can cast an image of what people expect and see i mean it certainly is a game of ratings it's a game of how many people are actually going to latch onto this and so i i i don't know i my first thought about it was that the the mistake that's being made here is is creating all the doing doing that making this first pronouncement too early 
because I think that actually the world may have moved on by the time it actually yeah. gets shown. It just seems, as I was saying before we went on the air, exactly what all the girls on Girls would do, right? They, right. you know, right. Shoshana and Hannah and uh, Marnie and, and whoever the other one is. <laughs> Jessa. Jessa. They'd all get together and they'd drink a bunch of wine and they'd like live tweet this really stupid Do any of them even have cable? I don't think they have jobs they to pay for you. Go to a bar then. Yeah. Yeah. Go to a bar. <laughs> right. and, and they do it. So it just seems like so unfair that we, that she's telling us that we can't do it. You know, it did bring me back to, though, when I was a kid, I used to, you, like once a year, they'd play the Wizard of Oz probably around mm-hmm. this time and same with Alice in Wonderland and I would get so excited the difference is those are good and this will not be and Wait so a second. Yeah. No, we don't know that because Christopher Walken as he could, Hook. He yeah. could be really good. I mean, that, that could be amazing. They show Although some clips Cyril of him. Cyril Richard is, was so great. It's going to be hard to beat Cyril Richard. I, I do quickly want to say, they've also, I, I want to watch it to see how they fix some of the problems in it. And the biggest problem, of course, is Tiger Lily, who, if you recall, was was it Sandra Lee? It was somebody like that mm-hmm. in the original production. And she they come out and dance and they go, ugga wugga wigwam. Ugga wugga wigwam. <laughs> and then they say all this other kind of Indian nonsense. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, right, and that right, is right, just right. not going to fly here mm-hmm. in 2014. So, Right. I want to see Speaking the. Speaking, re- I'm not going to fly. How do they do the flying? That's why pink. They should have gotten they pink. Right. Pink could have flown like with you know, a scarf. The, yeah. She could have done first day. Scarf dance. Yes. Big mistake to not get pink. Anyway, or Justin Bieber. We and I don't even like pink. Or, or, or Justin Bieber. No, I, that, that we want to talk about hate watching. You want to talk? You want to talk about live tweeting? Are you kidding me? All the that believers would be a are waiting. It would be bonanza. Bonanza. All right, we have to take a break so you'll have time to endorse when we come back. Thanks. Oh God. I guess this is the wrong time to mention my plan to open a Tom Cruise Scientology frat house in the West End of Hartford, huh? Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me. Our interns are Colleen Mason and John Francois. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Mart Martin. For show pages, articles, and photos of the Faith Middleton Show staff dancing with Tiger Lily, visit our website, WNPR.org. On Monday, Neil Gaiman and Amanda Palmer join the scramble. And now, back to Colin. Yes, America's, actually the world's a super nerd power couple will be joining us uh, on Monday. Neil Gaiman, Amanda Palmer. Oh. All right, time to do endorsements. Jim Chapterlane, what do you have? Uh, I would strongly uh, urge you to go to see the movie Birdman. Oh, I double, I double endorse. I, I just sort of blew my mind on a whole. I, I think I have to see it again, and then I would endorse it again. Um, I, I won't describe it. I, I don't know if it's describable, but go see it. And uh, and then I have to endorse um, the reunion of the Wild Weeds, Big Al Anderson's first band, first time they're playing in Connecticut in 46 years uh, on December 26th and 27th, followed by us playing a full set of uh, Big Al's music. And tickets are selling fast, so get out there. It's at Hills Point Hotel in Windsor or Windsor Locks. They need to add extra extra men's room space because all of us fans of the Wild Weeds, we pee more than we did, you know. Yeah, and I think there's going to be a walker lane. (laughs) Probably. All right, James, first of all, I would endure seeing Birdman a second time when James gets it. 
because you really want to see that yeah, on a big I, screen. I, I that big that, that big one shot quality mm-hmm. of Birdman will look great at Trinity Cine Studio. But what's on your endorsement? Well, I can list? really guarantee we'll show it. We've mm-hmm. had a lot of requests, so we will definitely be showing it. But there's another movie that we're coming up with, which is a rare chance, uh, one of these revivals that comes along occasionally, uh, Roberto Rossellini's Rome Open City, Città Aperta, um, with, uh, with an ex- extraordinary restoration that actually looks like film, beautifully done. It's one of the peaks of um, uh, of the uh, neorealist cinema, post-war Italy. And Anna Magnani, it's probably the most amazing film that she's ever made, just extraordinary film. And it's a really a good chance to see one of the best films made in Italian cinema. And it has a real history, but it's been beautifully restored, and you can see it on the big screen at Sydney Studios starting on Sunday, November 30th, runs through the 3rd of December through Wednesday. Awesome. That sounds great. All right. Uh, did you think of anything? I did come up with something. I'm going to endorse reading the book Wild before it comes out as a movie next month. Um, I read it a few years ago. I loved it. It's a much better version of Eat, Pray, Love with a much more likable narrator. And, and the, see the book again? Which book is it? Wild. Well, I it, didn't even know this was coming out. Yes. Reese Witherspoon is going to be in the movie. And uh, it's about a woman walking the Pacific Crest Trail oh, yeah. after like a uh, sort of real-life breakdown. And instead of getting a book deal and going off to Asia for a year, she just walks the Pacific Crest Trail. All right. I'm going to endorse a, a few things. Uh, one of them is... Um, uh, I'm going to endorse um, the podcast Serial with some reservations. Okay, Serial is, I mean, it's, good, it's like a gateway drug to podcasts. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you don't do podcasts, this is probably going to be the first podcast you ever listen to because there's so much oomph behind it. It's an outgrowth, kind of a spinoff from This American Life. Sarah Koenig, who's a uh, producer there, is, is now doing this. It's a true crime story, which is really kind of unfolding at the rate, anyway, that Sarah Koenig is bringing her her own sort of amateur, you know, she's not a crime reporter, so you're watching her kind of put together the skills she needs to try to figure this out uh, kind of in real time. There are some problems with it, and, and there have been some interesting backlashes to it uh, this week, ranging from uh, one website, The All, I think, saying she wasn't really getting the uh, ethnic dynamics, the differences between a Pakistani family and a Chinese family, both of whom are involved in this story. Uh, somebody else saying she's uh, she's not a good crime reporter, she's missing the, the police uh, malfeasance uh, in this, um, and also the uh, brother of the murdered girl is sort of saying that he doesn't enjoy having his family's life turned into this kind of uh, fashionable entertainment. I think all those things are worth thinking about and talking about, but I also think it's worth listening to this. And once you start, you will not be able to stop. Uh, it really is uh, very addictive. And then on the interwebs, um, and those of you who follow me on Facebook may have seen these, but for those of you who don't, I would recommend it. You're just going to have to Google these things. You'll get them pretty quickly. Um, a site where they've um, replaced every reference in the Bible, uh, every reference to Philistines with haters. Uh, and it's really great. Okay. I mean, I, th- I don't know if that sounds great, but it really is great. Uh, so every time in the Bible they say Philistines, uh, uh, and now it says haters. Uh, and then also the site where they took Willow and Jaden Smith's uh, bizarre uh, beings of the future interview in the New York Times <laughs> fashion magazine and rendered it as a, a iambic verse uh, as though it were a Shakespeare play. Um, so I don't know. Will, if you Google that to Will, Willow and Jaden iambic or something, you'll probably get it. All right. We have to go. We have to go. I'm being warned. We have to go. Thanks so much, Teresa Kramer, James Hanley, Jim Chapdelaine. Waterberry, Alderberry, Woodberry, getting on New Britain, Vernon, I already said that one, Avon, Farmington, yeah, 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 on the radio. She is on the radio. On the radio, baby. You me talk.
I'm Kyone Wolf. Why did they cast Allison Williams as Peter Pan? I always thought he was more of a Shoshana.